Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. All right. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, it is uh, good to uh, be back at Lifeline. I am uh, yeah, just any time I'm in this place, I'm um, reminded of the good grace that uh, God has given us to uh, to do justice among his people uh, and to live in light of the gospel call that we all have on our lives. And so uh, it is good to be here. Uh, I am excited to be here with what is one of my favorite books, um, Plain Theology for Plain People uh, by Charles like Charles Booth, uh, which Republished uh, by Dr. Walter Strickland II, um, and I understand that you're going to be going through this book, um, and it's been one of my favorite books for the for the last couple of years. Um, uh, interesting to say because the book uh, to us was published way back in 1890, uh, and a rediscovery was made just recently uh, by Dr. Strickland, uh, who's associate vice president for Kingdom Diversity at Southeastern. Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, I uh, will start by saying that I have a uh, very deep and robust view uh, of human depravity. And so I am not naive enough to believe that all of you have read this book. Uh, And so I say all that to say, uh, we will go through it together uh, this morning, but will you bow your heads with me and breathe a word of prayer? Father, we do thank you and praise you for you being God and God all by yourself. We are thankful for your son, Jesus, and the hope that is ours in his name. Father, I pray that you at this time would give me conviction of heart uh, and that I would be uh, but a mouthpiece for you, uh, that Gavin might be removed, that people might see uh, your son in all of his glory. Father, I pray all of this for the good of your people, but ultimately for the glory of your great name. It is in your son's name that we do pray. All God's people said, amen. Uh, so we'll start by going, I think my, the task before me today is to go through uh, the introduction, the preface, and the first chapter. So we'll start uh, with the introduction. Uh, this book's introduction is written by Dr. Strickland and gives us kind of a much needed background of Charles Octavius Booth's uh, life and ministry. Booth is a man that I have to say that I admire, uh, and in many ways I feel a special connection to. Uh, He is someone that I feel a great deal of indebtedness to and gratitude for. Uh, Booth is a native Alabamian. He was born, uh, like myself, in Mobile County, Alabama. Uh, After Booth learned to read and write, he served uh, as a law clerk uh, in a local law firm, becoming a student of the law, Uh, And it's believed that Booth um, maybe even wants to be a lawyer. Uh, And as some of you may know, um, the legal rhetoric of Booth's day was often rooted in biblical literature and reading of the Bible and understanding of biblical justice. And it was pouring over the scriptures uh, in a law clerk's office where Booth came to a saving knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Booth was... Uh, the founder of the Colored Missionary Baptist Association of Alabama, which is the denomination that I grew up in, a denomination that I still preach in regularly. 
1878, Booth would be a part of the team that founded Selma University, uh, which is still owned and operated by the denomination. Uh, and and I, I have to say that uh, just about all of the pastors that I had growing up, the men who discipled me and baptized me, uh, were educated in some way at Selma University. Uh, Booth himself uh, planted multiple churches, most, most notably, uh, he planted the Dexter Avenue uh, Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, and if you don't know that church, uh, you should. Uh, that is the church where Dr. Martin Luther King held his first pastorate. Uh, it is the church that was the heart of Montgomery's civil rights movement and the bus boycott, and is a church that is still worshiping and spreading gospel light uh, in downtown Montgomery, Alabama, where Eric and I will be moving soon. Uh, aside from planting churches and preaching, Booth was an ardent critic of slavery. Uh, he sought to, uh, as the book, the, the introduction says, improve the spiritual and social intellect and intellectual well-being of blacks in a society that denied their humanity before God and in its constitution. He also writes that Booth promoted literacy so former slaves could read the Bible and, free, and break free of the oppressive interpretive practices that made Christian faith a tool to subjugate blacks during slavery. Uh, Booth was often seen as a pioneer, uh, advocating for interracial cooperation, even in the 1800s, uh, and even oftentimes worshiping with white Baptists uh, in his community. Uh, he often worked with the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, even though the Southern Baptist Convention wouldn't even ordain uh, Booth in their own denomination. Um, later in life, Booth uh, decided to flee the South. Uh, Booth died in 1924, it is believed, in Detroit. Uh, little is known of his later, later years. Um, it is not even known at this point where Booth is buried. Uh, to say the least, the Lord used Charles Octavius Booth in a mighty way, uh, in a very real way, Booth played a role in my discipleship through the denomination and institutions that he helped to establish. Uh, and this book is a product of Booth wanting to arm lay people of his day, plain people, with a basic systematic theology. Uh, he wrote for an audience of rural pastors, teachers, sharecroppers, and community leaders who had little access to education. Uh, and I think there are really two reasons why I think this volume is really important for us to consider, uh, and Dr. Strickland fleshes that out as well. The first reason I really believe is that it is a, it is a good and easily digestible systematic theology for the average layperson. Uh, just around 150 pages, um, this is a systematic theology that we can all, I think, handle well. Uh, it is a very deep look into the faith, into the things of God, uh, but it's succinct and accessible, uh, even to those of us who don't have the benefit of seminary education. Uh, he says at the bottom of page two, and I want to read what is said in the preface, starting in the last line of page two. The doctrines of our holy religion need to be study, studied in order, according to some definite system, but simplicity should prevail. Simplicity of arrangement and simplicity of language. This plea for plainness is made because of these facts. And I'll skip to number three, because I think it's most pertinent to us in that second paragraph on page three. The private members of churches who have little time for books, but have great need for the truths that those books teach, should find the truth suited for their time, their understanding, 
and their wants. Indeed, our hope lies in the religious education of the whole people. The second point I would make of why I think that um, this book is so important is that it is proof of the theological depth and richness and robustness uh, of the black church uh, of the black church tradition. Uh, this is important, and I will again suffice to use uh, Dr. Strickland's word. It's uh, words. It's on um, Roman numeral eleven, if I remember my Roman numerals correctly, in the introduction. Uh, and I'll read what he says, at the, starting at the top of that page. Plain theology for plain people destroys reductionist stereotypes of black faith. Many are unfamiliar with the African-American theological heritage because of its limited corpus. Black Christianity is largely an oral tradition and its written resources have been obscured by racial bias. Today, as in Booth's time, many tend to caricature black Christian faith as merely religious feeling and fervor. Plain theology for plain people shows black evangelicals that they belong in the broad evangelical tradition. Many thoughtful black Christians, often educated in evangelical universities and seminaries, have, endure, have an enduring sense of homelessness in the evan, evangelical tradition. Their ancestors are seldom, if ever, included as contributors to evangelicalism. Booth off, offers a window into an unexplored vista of theological expression. Black evangelicals have an equal claim to the evangelical tradition, even though evangelicals have historically muted their voice. Plain theology for plain people requires evangelicals to engage non-white theological voices because evangelical, biblical, and theological studies have excluded the voices of racial minorities. Evangelical theology is shaped by the concerns of the dominant culture. Unfortunately, white evangelicals only hear minority evangelicals theology if it echoes white evangelical voices. I'll close with this line. Unity in Christ demands an openness to collaboration and to mutual sharpening in the theological task. So with that, I will move uh, to chapter one of this book. For your Monday morning, we'll handle something quite light and digestible. The being and character of God. Booth starts with something, again, like I say, that's nice and light. Um, but I think this is a very uh, good place to start. I mean, the very word theology uh, means that our study of the nature and character of God. And I think that it is an important place to start here. There, there is a notion that I sense in many churches uh, and movement, movements these days, uh, that good theology, that strong theology is not important. And I wanna press back against that if I can. Uh, what you think about God, your theology is very important because what we think about God will determine how we react to him. A high view of God breeds a high view of his teachings, his people, and his church. And so Booth starts with God, and so this morning I want us to consider who God is. The first part is asked where, or, or speaks to where God appears to us. Booth begins by quoting scripture. And this book is laden with scripture references. I think in my reading of it, I would estimate uh, that 30 to 40% is just uh, straight up scripture, um, which uh, is 
just uh, shows Booth's reliance on the text to drive his theology. Uh, but Booth um, begins with scripture, and I, I want to read paragraph, uh, read page five, paragraphs one and two, uh, that we first God appears to us in the works of creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day, unto day other is speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. The next from Romans 1.20. The invisible things of, God, of him, of God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, even his, his eternal power and Godhead. Booth, state, as does the, Booth states, as does the Apostle Paul, that if nothing else, you ought to be smart enough to know that when you look to the mountains high and out on the oceans wide and down through the valleys deep, you ought to be smart enough to know that that did not come from mere human handiwork, that no mere man could have done this. And if not us, then it must be someone. Someone much greater than man, Booth argues. But not only do, does God appear to us in creation, Booth says that God appears to us in his works of providence. Booth makes the bold argument that providence carries much weight in our present society. He essentially says that in this section that God in his providence created a world that points us back to him, even if we don't have sense enough to realize it. Booth points out in this section that folks, even folks that claim not to believe in God, all believe in something. By nature, it is imprinted on the heart of man to look for some supreme being but beyond himself. And that's still relevant today. Our society, post-Christian as it may be, is always looking for something, whether it's the Dalai Lama or sidekicks or some other spiritual thirst that our society has. It is imprinted on even the most secular of folks to look for meaning beyond this life. And I found, I might add, that this is a great pathway to gospel conversation with people. Uh, oftentimes, when I have conversations with people who don't profess to believe Christ or profess to believe in any God, we find that they are bound in some superstitious act or bound by uh, some uh, other extra spiritual practice. Uh, and though that is often scary to me, uh, it is proof that they are willing to believe in something. Uh, and that is a great pathway to showing them the God who is, not just the God who might be. The other place that Booth says that we encounter God, where God appears to us, is through the Holy Scriptures. I want you to look at part B um, on page 8, where he says this. The head and socket at the knee joint, and the tongue in the groove in the ceiling of the mouth, fit each other so closely and so neatly as the law fits the needs of, human, of the human heart. Booth argues that the law given in the scripture shows us that God knows what we need better than we know what we need. That's why when we read the scriptures, they convict us. Because in the scriptures, we encounter God himself. It, it grabs our hearts. I've often heard it said that we have read a lot of books 
but the Bible is the only book that has ever read us. But not only do the scriptures read us, in part C, he has the audacity to assert that not only can the scriptures read us, but the news in the scriptures is fresher than tomorrow's newspaper. Part C shows us that we see God in the scriptures through his prediction of future events. We encounter God by his ability to see things and tell things that are yet to be seen. And at the end of this section, Booth claims that we need to look no further than the storyline of, of Christ in the scriptures to see, to see how God is visible in all of the scriptures. In page 10, he writes at the top, nothing can be more certain evidence of the presence of a divine mind than the uncovering of times and things and seasons yet to come especially when these stretch over great many years, passing over much very interesting testimony as to God's signs, God, the signs of God's presence in the Bible. I come, to, I come to what me seems to be the crowning testimony, namely the messianic idea. Whoever traces the development of Christ through the Bible from Genesis 3.15 through all its forms down to the manger at Bethlehem and thence to the cross through the tomb and on to the ascension, whoever traces this idea with humble purpose and to be informed must of necessity perceive that it is but the unfolding of an eternal purpose involving not only all of man's earthly history and more mortal career, but having in view his interest in the world to come, nor can he fail to see the incidents which were, which were to attend upon the development of the idea where, we're all under the eye from his whom the purpose came. Booth closes this section by saying, I don't know what I have written here. The works of creation, the operations of providence, and the sacred scriptures clearly show the presence of being of infinite power infinite knowledge, infinite wisdom, imperfect excellence of character. And where these attributes appear, the presence of God himself is declared. But not only can we see God through these areas, the scriptures also, Booth argues, teach us what may be known of God. This next session asks about God from the scriptures. And I'm going to go through these as quickly as possible. There are 11 of them. So I'm sorry if I don't have time to camp out like I would like to uh, in all 11. But the first says that God is spirit. That is to say that God is not made of matter like you and I. That would be problematic, right? Seeing as God existed before God created matter itself. God is not bound by weight by measure, by figure, by form, or by color. That is why the scriptures warn us against worshiping forms or images of God, but we are to remember John 24, John 4, 24, where God is, it said, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship, worship him in spirit and in truth. Booth goes on to say, not only is God a spirit, but God is self-existent. Booth argues that God differs from us in his ability to exist without help. You and I, we need air. About every four seconds, everybody in this room 
takes a gulp of air and then expires it. We need water. We need food. We need sustenance to survive. But Booth makes the argument that God existed before any of those things were created. God existed before there was anything and therefore needs nothing to sustain himself but himself. But not only is God self-sustaining, but God is eternal, Booth says. This is simply to say that God has no beginning and no end. As far as our feeble minds, Booth says, can imagine in either direction of eternity, God is there and beyond. But not only is God eternal, Booth says that God is omnipresent. Booth makes the argument from the 139th Psalm that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. There is nowhere where you will find yourself beyond the reach of God. But not only is he omnipresent, he is also omniscient, Booth says, that he is all knowledgeable. Booth also says that God is omnipotent, that God is all-powerful. And he points that we see this in creation, that God made something from nothing. Often when I point out to Christians that God made something, I feel like it doesn't hit Christians like it ought to. And I think that's because none of us in here have ever made anything. We like to think we have. I'm sure some of you in here bake. And you think that you bake cakes that you, and you will say, I made a cake. Can I tell you a secret? You didn't make the cake. You took some sugar that had already been made. You took some flour that had already been made. You took some eggs that had already been made. You took some milk that had already been made. You put them together and out came a cake. But, but God, when all he had was the power of his own personality, when all he had was the veracity of his own voice, looked out on nothing, spoke into nothing, and something became. It is this ex nihilo power that we talk about that's out of nothing power, that God could take nothing and do something with it. And if I could lean in here just a little bit, that, that's the story of how we came to Christ. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but, but God, looking at our souls with nothing to work with, made something out of nothing, made us alive in Christ. God is omnipotent. But not only is God omnipotent, who says that God is all-wise. Wisdom is not to be, conceived, to be confused with knowledge. We've already talked about God being all-knowing in his omniscience. Wisdom is being able to use your knowledge to reach a desired end. My grandfather used to make this distinction between knowledge and wisdom. I'm in law school, so I often run into folks who have a lot of knowledge but no wisdom. My grandfather would say there are a lot of smart people walking around. But Gavin, they can't walk and chew gum at the same time. They don't have good walking around sense. It's one thing for God to know everything. But, but it, is a, it is a completely different thing for not only for God to have all of the knowledge in the world, 
but to know how to rightly apply that knowledge. God isn't just omniscient, but he knows how to apply that omniscience perfectly. But not only is God all wise, God is infinitely holy and perfectly just, Booth says. We talked about these the last time I was here, but let it suffice to say, as Booth makes clear, that there is no sin in God and that God is completely and perfectly equitable in his judgment. But not only is God holy and just, God is true and he is faithful. And this is good. Booth rightly argues that we have a God who does not lie. He makes a promise. He is completely faithful to complete it. He quotes scripture here from 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen. Booth argues that this was most evidence in God's, in God's promise to provide a savior way back in Genesis 3, which God himself was faithful to do. But not only is God true and faithful, but Booth also says that God is immutable and unchangeable. I'm going to read Booth's words here, starting on page 19 in the third paragraph down where he quotes from Numbers. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. He says, we fooling, erring creatures are filled with uncertainty, vacillations, changes, but these come from our imperfections. We need knowledge, wisdom, and holiness. Change belongs to man, not to God, who is perfect. Perfect. A being who alters his purposes or is fickle in his plans is not perfect. Is not perfect in intellect nor perfect in character. Brothers and sisters, it is good news that we have a God whose mind is made up. His purposes are determined. and He's not changing his mind on us. But not only is that true of God, but God is also good and merciful, Booth says. In part A, Booth argues that God has filled the earth in creation with things for your good enjoyment, for his pleasure and for our good. He says, right in that, in that section, in section A, on page 19. Nothing is more plainly written in creation than the evidence that God is disposed to fill his creatures with happiness. He has given us eyes to see and has spread around us beautiful things to be seen. He has created sweet sounds and given us ears to hear them. He has filled the world with good things and given us power to enjoy them. I don't think uh, that I have to say this um, to everybody, uh, but there's somebody in here that I feel probably needs to hear it. There are things in this world that God has given you to enjoy, and God is not expecting you to live a Christian life depriving yourself of good things enjoyed in creation for his glory. All right? I mean, every time I eat a good steak, all right? I eat and I go, man, God created this steak. And it should point us to God's love for his world and for his people. Out of his pleasure and out of his goodness and his mercy, he has given us things 
to show his goodness, to show he is a good father, to show he's a merciful father, and to show that he loves us. And we should enjoy those things, not in place of the creator, but because of the creator. Part C shows us the clearest demonstration of Christ's mercy, of God's goodness and mercifulness. That God, when we were dead in our sin, sent his son to die the death that you and I deserve to die. He quotes there John 3.16, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so there Booth gives us 11 true attributes of God, 11 things to be known and rested in about God. And after he says all of these 11 11 things, Booth feels the need to seemingly clear something up. The next big section here is entitled The Unity of God. And it might seem feasible, feasible after looking at multiple attributes of God that one might determine that there are multiple gods. Or even at least that God functions in different ways at different times. But Booth refutes this. Part of the extraordinary nature of our God is that he can be spirit and self-existent and eternal and omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent and all-wise and holy and just and true and faithful and immutable, unchangeable, good and merciful all at the same time. These things function harmoniously and simultaneously. God is not one who is two-faced or three-faced or 11-faced. But these are all attributes of our God that he is using all at the same time, all for his good ends and purposes. You're never going to catch God when he's not holy. You're never going to catch a holy God when he's not also just. There's never going to be a time when he's not good and merciful. There's never going to be a time when he's not loving and omniscient, all-wise. He is doing all of these things all at once. That should drive us to an awesomeness in our view of God. Most of us can't do two or three things at the same time. I know I can't. But God, all of these things, held all of these things, all of these attributes together as one. But as soon as Booth argues that there is unity in God, he says that this unified God exists in three persons. Booth says something at the beginning of this section that I agree with. He says, here I speak with rather more fear than usual. Booth rightfully points out that the Bible plainly teaches that God exists in three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But this is undoubtedly confusing. Booth writes on page 22 that no doctrine of Christian faith is more plainly taught than there are, per- than there are three persons in the Godhead. We cannot comprehend it, but we can accept it as truth and wonder, worship, and wait for the time in which we shall know as we are known. I'm 
reminded here of Augustine's famous quote where he says, if you deny the Trinity, you will lose your soul. If you try to explain the Trinity, you will lose your mind. But nonetheless, Booth attempts to explain it in a way that is faithful and helpful. On page 22, Booth argues from scripture a position that I hold to, that this is the, the Trinitarian function in salvation. I'll read from Booth's words on page 23, about halfway down. In this council, Christ was slain in purpose from before the foundation of the world. In the work of redemption, the persons of the Trinity seem to occupy different offices. The Father sends the Son, who restores the law, and the Son sends the Spirit, who restores the life. That is to say that God, before the foundation of the world, in eternity past, had a plan for salvation. At the cross 2,000 years ago, Christ accomplished your salvation. But in these more recent days, the Holy Spirit has made you alive in Christ. I say it this way, speaking of myself personally. In eternity past, God had a plan for my salvation. At that point, it was there. As far as God was concerned, that's when my salvation was there. As far as Jesus was concerned, my salvation was secured at a place called Calvary 2,000 years ago. Now, as far as the Spirit was concerned, my, my salvation was made known. I was made alive to Christ. In about 2007, on a church pew at Bethesda Missionary Baptist Church, 201 South 4th Street, Opelika, Alabama, where the Lord convicted me of my sin, where the Spirit showed me my sin, and I trusted for the first time in Jesus Christ. This is the beauty of the Trinity put forth just, for example, in our salvation all working seamlessly together, though different in function, to accomplish the unified work of God. Now I want to ask a question, if anybody has their book, if anybody's read their book, if there's anything in this Trinity section that strikes you as different in organization than the rest of this chapter, Any takers? I know it's early. Something of a novelty that I get to ask questions. Usually I'm being asked. I don't know that Booth did this purposely. Uh, when I imagine when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. But if you'll notice in this section, as opposed to the other sections, it is not divided into subparts. Throughout the rest of the chapter, Booth is very quick to divide things by letters or Roman numerals. And I don't know that this is purposeful, but it is my belief that Booth in this section, though it would have been very easy to label the father as section A and the son as section B and the spirit as section C, Booth does not do that here as he does in the rest of the chapter. It is important that when we speak of the Trinity, we do not speak of God as, as if he is three people separately, as if they exist independent of one another. 
as if that God has been bifurcated into these three separate beings that don't work for one cohesive purpose. And so while I don't know that that's what Booth was doing, I have to imagine that Booth was here trying to articulate a position that said that the Trinity is not like Neapolitan ice cream. Thank you for that laugh, I appreciate it. But that it is cohesive, that they are not independent. Brothers and sisters, Booth's first chapter in this book should leave us in all. There is no one like our God. Mere man, if left to himself, could not fathom someone like our God. He is more awesome than our meager and sinful minds could ever imagine. And yet, he is mindful of us. He loves us. This ought to drive us to worship. It ought to drive us to submission. And it ought to drive us to obedience. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, hmm. I am in awe of who you are. Even as best as my feeble and weak mind can imagine you. I am thankful that you have spoken plainly in your word as to who you are. I am thankful that in these most recent days, you have demonstrated who you are through your son. Father, I am thankful for the good and faithful work of Charles Octavius Booth, who boldly and prophetically and unapologetically preached the good news of your son to the people of this state many years ago. I'm thankful for his conviction and the truth that is left with us in this book. I pray that you would have these words to be edifying to your body, to the folks here at Lifeline. Father, I pray that we would all find comfort in you being God. I pray that we would find rest in your character and in the things that are known of you. Father, I, I pray uh, that we are driven to worship of you, to all of you, to obedience. And Father, I, I pray that most of all, we remain cognizant that you and all of your godliness were willing to come down in human flesh, subject yourself to this sinful world, to live a life that none of us could live and die a death that each of us deserved to die. 
thankful, Father, that your son has conquered that death. Father, I pray for the good mission and work of Lifeline. I pray that you would continue to give them grace upon grace to run with endurance the race that you have set before them. I pray that you would continue to, uh, to bless them richly. Father, I pray that many would come to know uh, the risen and resurrected Christ because of the good work and good care that Lifeline shares for vulnerable children. Father, we thank you, we praise you. It is in the name of your son, Jesus, that we do pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study.